Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast explores the center and fringe of art scenes around the world. Today, we share conversations that expand on the definition of the word artist. Sharon Loudon is a New York-based artist and educator. She acted on her commitment to support contemporary artists by sharing their stories. Loudon initiated a book trilogy dedicated to living and sustaining a creative life. For the second book in the series, The Artist as Culture Producer, she invited 40 visual artists to contribute essays. To begin exploring this book, we sit down with Sharon Loudon and Rog Vartanian, co-founder and editor-in-chief of the online art publication Hyperallergic. Vartanian wrote the foreword to the book. Inside the tent of Untitled Art Fair during Miami Art Week, we talk about the potential for artists to shape culture. I wanted to talk about how artists not only have a practice in their studios, they do projects that are not only in the market as we're seeing here today, and they also extend themselves out into the public realm in many different ways. The artists I chose are people who are very generous. They create communities. They do projects that are not only in the market but then they also extend themselves out into the public realm in many different ways. You're offering the inside story, the, the roots, the impetus, the inspiration, and the giving that's part of being an artist that a lot of people don't understand. You know, by that artist as culture producer, that's a giving aspect of art that people don't always think about. Your focus is what they can give to communities. I totally appreciate you saying that and recognizing that, but I also think it's about how artists can give to one another. I think that still needs to happen more. And so it's not only a charge for the public to understand who an artist is today, but it's also a charge for artists to be able to create opportunities and give and fuel and feed this community that we're in. So the artists in this book are more models of what of a potential engagement. Artists are taught to be creative in every aspect of their lives. And sometimes, though, you have to remind them that it's also the models they create in actually living. It's not just about the work they're putting out into the world. It's actually the communities they're creating. It's like the way they choose to financially support themselves. I mean, these are all parts of the creativity of artists. And that's what they're so good at. And we're kind of in an era where those models are more important than ever because the old ways aren't working for everyone. I think we all feel that in different kinds of ways. So artists can start creating models that are a little more innovative, that are going to be challenging the status quo in different ways, or even just sort of wondering, hey, should I only be concerned about galleries? Should I only be concerned about museums? Should I start wondering about all those aspects and start creating questions and working with other people to figure out the answers? I think that's critically important. And I'm wondering what communities are represented in this book. Wendy Redstar, who's from Portland, Oregon, who's Native American artist, who's from the Crow Reservation, was raised in Montana. Andres Zatel, who creates a lot of opportunities for artists in California. 
And then you have the Dufalo brothers in Philadelphia who have a residency. It's called the Recycling Residency. Edgar Arsenault, who's in Los Angeles, who's just amazing and all the different things he does. I mean, each one of these artists creates their different communities around them. Artists as culture producer, are they generating any resources for themselves or is it a community service? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's both. I think that they're sustaining themselves and I think that also they do have a lot of different, I don't want to say jobs necessarily, but different sources of income. And I think that the definition of an artist today is not what it used to be. It's not so singular. But in this book, I pick people who have way different ways in which that they sustain a creative life. So there's Brett Wallace, who was actually hired by LinkedIn because he's an artist. And he manages about 50 people in that company. And to me, that's just one avenue. Teaching, that's a definitely one, I think, in some ways, even more than the art market, is probably one of the most stabilizing forces of artist communities in the world. Because the market exists in some communities, but the reality is almost education and like teaching for artists exists everywhere. You know, whether it's in a high school or whether it's in a college or something. So I think we have to acknowledge that. Education's always been an integral part of what we do. Residencies for other artists, studios, I mean, real estate, all different ways in which artists can produce culture today. What new roles do you see artists taking on in today's political climate? Oh my God. I wish they would run for office. That would I be mean, great. I would love it. I would love to run for office. I'd like for them to be more involved in the political spectrum, in those communities, in the public. I think the role of the artist should be more integrated in the public. And that was a big thing in my mind, a big intention in my mind for the second book, is that I wanted to, actually the main audience for this book really is not the art world, that secondary is the public. And I want to create those bridges where artists can cross over into the public realm. And I think the more we're integrated and accepted, if you will, the more poverty there's going to be. And I think everybody raises to another level when that happens, when artists are involved. So that's what I can see. I want them to be more involved in the opportunities in politics that are already set and position them. If we had an artist in every public school that was planted there, a practicing artist in every public school, but also maybe in every administration that we have more artists who are active, I think it would just enhance and create more opportunities for everybody. The director of the Mercado Museum in Brooklyn, she became a city councilor. I share Sharon's dream of that. Like, I'd like there to be an artist in residence in every major corporation, organization, exactly. public institution. They created a position of artist in residence in the Immigration Bureau in the city of New York. With you know, Ta- Tanya, Tanya Bergera. Right. And then, so like, this is an example. That, what a great idea. A few months later, during Armory Art Week in New York, we joined the crowd gathering for the book signing at the Strand Bookstore. That's where we catch up with a few of the New York-based artist contributors. Brett Wallace explores work, technology, and the greater economy. His writing, video, installation, and performance delve into practices, spaces, and systems of capitalism. 
My work is focusing on the future of technology and people, and a major part of my work is compassion and thinking about automation and machine learning and artificial intelligence and how these technologies are going to play out over a long period of time and what does that mean for how we all have to mediate this world filled with technology. So that's part of my conceptual art practice. And you also have a blog. I have a blog called The Conversation Project, which I started about two years ago or so. The first interview was with Michelle Grabner, the well-known painter and curator and teacher. And she was also one of the first artists in Sharon's original book, Essays by Living and Working Artists About Sustaining a Creative Life. And after the interview with Michelle, it sort of just took off. And I've been doing it ever since. And I got to say, it's been one of the most refreshing and educational parts of my life, getting an inside look at the studio and production values and the vision of how artists and culture producers think. So it's really been a, a great learning experience for me to go through that process over the last two years. And I'm keeping it up because I'm in love with it. And I think this, this word cultural producer is a real interesting one. To me, it means essentially thinking about your practice beyond your own studio walls. It's thinking about the broadest definition of an artist as someone who is a part of the culture, but working within their own culture and sort of extending their practice, whether it be artists within institutions or artists within various residencies or uh, just one of the most recent interviews I am working on right now is with CERN, the folks in Geneva, Switzerland at the Hadron Collider, and they have an artist program. So thinking about the idea of cultural production beyond the fixed studio itself and into the culture, that I think is something that I've seen as a common thread across the book. And I think it's something that's so important today, given where art fits into the dominant culture. I just see a huge opportunity for artists to be working across various sectors in technologies and industries and in some cases governments, given the state of where we are today. And you think about art being part of humanities in a broader sense, and that's why we can't resist talking to an artist that works with scientists and goes into that realm, like the Collider Project. Yes, CERN is on the border of France and Switzerland, and it's artists working with scientists studying particle physics. There's no rules to what an artist can be, so I think it's for each artist, they can manifest it, the definition, however they see fit. So an artist can be someone with a social practice. It can be someone activating social practice in a time like this when activism is needed. It can also be someone putting all their energy towards a project in their studio. That's fine too. It's a multi-dimensional practice and there are no rules. But I think this idea of cultural production can be internalized and it can come out and be actualized however an artist sees fit. In some cases, in, in my case, that's definitely the blog. It's also thinking about the future of technology and it's thinking about projects that operate in the culture, such as Amazing, which is this fictive conceptual artwork that I've launched that takes the shape of a startup and is starting to operate as an actual entity that goes beyond a studio and operates in cyberspace. And Is it fictitious what Amazing Shipping is doing? You are creating these boxes with messages. Mm -hmm. You are That's shipping art around That's the city, and you did deliver art with a drone? Yes. All of that is correct. So I don't use the word fake. I use the word fictive because it's not fake. It's actually real. All those things that you just mentioned are real. They're they real. actually happen. They actually happen. They're real materials. They're real products. I'm a real artist doing real things. Um, and I use the word fictive in the sense that it's playing on this idea of we're living in a parafictional reality. And I'm using amazing as a vehicle to carry some of the messages I'm most passionate about carrying towards the culture, which is this idea of 
compassion in a state of technological uncertainty with technologies like AI and machine learning and 3D printing, all of these wonderful technologies that have so much promise, but at the same time, there's a lot of fear and anxiety wrapped up into what does all this mean? Given the current state of affairs, there's a lot of questions about where does all this technology go? Does it actually lift economic opportunity or does it not? And I think exploring those issues is really important and timely. I think many of us have learned to make it a tool mm -hmm. that is a vital conduit for our practice. There was a book that was recently published by Wendy Hui Kwong Kim by MIT Press, and it was about how we are constantly updating just to remain in place. We're updating to remain the same, that the upgrades are coming so quickly that we're in this sort of constant flux. So I think the real question becomes, how do we shape these technologies towards better outcomes? How can the left, for example, own technology better to shape better outcomes? And I think the idea that I'm playing with a, with a startup, this sort of fictive technology company, is using that as a, as a messenger to sort of explore these issues in depth and use them as artworks and installations and performances that take the shape of this techno-capitalist startup. That's one of the vehicles I'm most used to. I've been an artist inside of, of the digital world, inside of tech companies for the greater part of my career. So I'm very comfortable operating between those two environments. So who do you hope will read this book? I actually think the audience for this book is beyond the art world. I think the audience for this book is institutions and corporations and governments and people that generally have an interest in culture. I do think a huge part of this world is also the artists in the art world because artists, by creating culture, support one another. And here we are you know, during Armory Week. There's a lot of stuff going on where you can see art fairs that are run by artists, where other artists are curating artists. So I think cultural production actually is something very important and vital to the artistic community. And it's something that we all need to keep doing more of. But I think the bigger picture is how does that production make itself into the culture? And I think there's some great opportunities for companies and you know, places like CERN and others to keep building their artist programs up so that artists can actually work closely with some of these organizations to affect change in, in the community. Shanique Smith is a painter and sculptor known for her monumental creations of fabric, clothing, and calligraphy. The things we consume and discard inform her work. Smith has a very clear point of view on the value of art and artists. We're so grateful as artists to be given opportunities that sometimes we allow people to devalue us. You know, it's funny, values is a big question because I think it's something that we think about a lot in terms of money. Because of sales, it is a marketable thing. These are luxury items to a certain degree that only certain people can afford. Most artists can't afford to buy work. I mean, I just came from the Armory. I have a solo booth there. I have a couple of friends who have solo booths there, and we talked about trading because we want to own each other's work, but neither of us can afford completely. I mean, I could, but like, you know what I mean, like payments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we support each other's work, but there's a monetary value, but then there's cultural value, critical value in terms of like art and art history. And I think that we as artists let others dictate what that is. 
I've just come to learn as I've gotten older and I've been showing commercially for 12 years now and I feel that it's important to step up and value yourself and then help guide people to understanding what that value is instead of accepting that others are going to say this has this cultural significance and this doesn't and this is worth this amount and this is worth much more and this is worth much less and and then you get caught up in listening to what others think of where you should be. I spoke on that in my chapter in the book and it's something that I think is important as human beings in general outside of being an artist that we know that we all have a value and that we all have a light to bring to the world. If we don't value it ourselves, then no one else will. Your work has a relationship with dance and you've been doing performance yes. projects. Yes, I studied dance for 12 years from when I was four. Uh, so dance has been a big influence on me. I think the way my body moves in relationship to making art and the way I see movement. You grew up in Baltimore yeah. and you were a graffiti artist as a teenager at the yeah. same time you were at the Baltimore School for the Arts, right? Yes. And then went to MICA, Maryland Institute College Micah. of Art, and have this formal training. And so graffiti informs some of your aesthetic? Yeah. I tagged for a couple of years and was up in Baltimore. And certainly some of my youngest influences are graffiti artists. Its influence on me is nostalgic, part of my youth. But I also, I think the reason I took to it is because there's a fluid, immediate nature to the line in graffiti that is akin to dance. I mean, I didn't think of it as real art until 10 years after. My formal artwork was much more figurative. I took courses in Japanese calligraphy. I saw that. And the two kind of merged together. That's a beautiful using relationship. I can see it in the work. So it's kind of like language as meditation, but also as a line that holds together composition. Michael Scoggins' work is described as a compendium of innocence, bravado, embarrassment, failure, anxiety, and self-deprecation. Dada and pop art movements influence how he mines unpretentious materials. Many of his works appear to be very large pages, torn from a spiral notebook, the text and drawings evoke his childhood. Personal history motivates his contribution to the book. They're drawing, I call them paintings sometimes, I call them sculptures, I call them objects. They're basically these replicas of spiral-bound notebooks, pages that have been torn out and enlarged six times the size of, like, I call them the eight and a half by eleven cousins, and I enlarge them and then draw the lines, cut the holes, make the paper. So we're getting up close to six feet by almost four feet wide. And then have this persona, this Michael S. character, who is sort of a younger version of myself. How old is he? It varies. Um, the original concept was that Michael S. would grow as the series aged. Um, but I kind of abandoned that pretty early on because it was just too restrictive. 
He's got a point of view that is more flexible than some adults. Exactly. Like, he doesn't have the filters that adults have to watch what they say. You know the, the phrase, kids say the darndest thing. He doesn't have the filters, and he can say and do whatever is on his mind. Let's hear one of the things that Michael S. would have written on a piece of paper. <laughs> I know one was a spelling test, it seems. Some of them are homework. Yeah, a lot of them do kind of mimic like homework assignments, um, like book reports, history like reports, math quizzes, basically. He'll have unique views about like history papers and things like that. Like being an artist from the South, say I was writing a history paper on the Civil War, say, like his perspective would be from like a Southern perspective. So he would say things that might not be considered PC. So the Michael S. character kind of takes the exact opposite opinion of my own personal opinions a lot of times. So a lot of it is kind of tongue-in-cheek humor, and I try to use humor, too, to disarm the viewer to discuss important issues. So we actually need that right now Mm -hmm. in the United States and the world as Uh, a whole. We definitely do. Absolutely. I don't know if everyone's getting that. I mean, sometimes people don't get kind of the the humor in it or the the twist, I guess. Um, And that's happened to me before at openings. Like, I I did a piece once that was uh, an anti-handgun piece. When Washington had its handgun ban overturned in the courts, I made a piece about that. So it was basically a big piece that was like how much I loved my gun. It went over well, and a lot of people did get it, but there were a few that were like, yeah, I do love my gun. The Second Amendment, you know, and all of that. And I was like, all right, you don't quite get it, but I do, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to look at it at least. And, you know, we can have a conversation from that, hopefully. And that's a big part of the work, too, is this format, this notebook format, this, this naive persona is accessible. I like anyone to be able to walk off the street and you don't need like an MFA in art history to be able to at least take something away from it and to relate to it. And that's always been really an important aspect of my my work. What do you talk about in in this book? The artist is culture producer. Well, I talk about my past some. I talk about my family and my southern roots coming from a very political family. My grandmother was an elected county register of deeds in North Carolina. She was one of the first women elected to public office in in North Carolina back in the 60s. And just kind of talking about the political nature of my family and how it has always played an important role. My father and I, you know, I grew up with these conversations all the time. You know, we would read the newspaper together and watch the news and discuss things at the dinner table. Where my mom was a painter, so I kind of got my artistic side from her. So it just made sense that these two things would blend together at some point. There's a lot of things that I view about myself in the negative, and I have always tried to take those negatives and kind of flip them on their head and empower them and make them into positives. And a lot of that pops up in the work. Things that I might be uncomfortable with, I personally will take them head on in the work to try to get over my own demons or whatever you want to call them. What would you want to be the main takeaway for somebody that read what you wrote? I never thought I'd be in the position that I'm in today as far as being an artist and being able to do what I do on a daily basis and then being able to actually be an active part of my community, the larger community, not just the art community. I'm very fortunate. I get to go around. I I get invited to schools. I get to go meet with students. I get to to lecture. I get to do studio visits. And I really try to be positive and be a positive influence. Just be like, look, if I can do it, you can do it. You just have to work really hard. And this is what I did. Chloe Bass is a nomadic public practitioner. She investigates the potential of the everyday as a catalyst for intimacy. 
Cultivating Relationships as a Way to Explore the Human Experience. Bass explains why Sharon Loudon asked her to write about her idiosyncratic practice. As an artist, I found that one of the most sustainable ways to lead my life so far is to make a lot of my new work in places that are not New York, because I can get paid as an artist to produce new work when I'm not at home. And also, when I'm not at home, I can sublet my apartment and not pay rent and save the money on the expenses of living somewhere by being somewhere else. So let's talk about some of the projects you produced in other places, other countries, obviously. At this point, I have lived and or made work in the following places. Germany, Turkey, Switzerland. I did not live in Switzerland, but I did make a project in Switzerland. And then in the United States, I live in New York, but I have spent extensive time in different parts of Nebraska, St. Louis, Greensboro, North Carolina, Cleveland, Ohio, and New Orleans. Works in the public sphere. In general, whenever I'm going somewhere, I am working with an embedded community there. The one exception to that was Germany. I was there as part of a residency program, and I was not actually working directly with the German community, nor was I required to. But everywhere else that I mentioned, I was working with people who were in and of that place. So, for example, when I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, I was brought down by Elsewhere, which is an amazing organization there, and I was asked to do a commissioned project for their South Elm project. So everybody who was invited to participate in South Elm projects had to make a project about South Elm Street or situated on South Elm Street. It's pretty self-explanatory. And I decided that what I was going to do was interview very everyday people on South Elm Street, not famous people, people who have lived or worked on the street for a long period of time. And I made historic plaques out of each of those interviews commemorating these super truly mundane moments that make a place what it is. And those plaques are now up forever in Greensboro. In Omaha, Nebraska, I was working on a project that I was also working on in New York called the Department of Local Affairs. And that project, the way that it works is I actually just created some templates. You can make a map, design a pamphlet, write a review, or leave advice. But the idea behind these templates is that they are by locals and for locals. So getting away from some of the things like Yelp, where anybody can be a reviewer, I really wanted to get towards the more colloquial language that we use and the more abstract language that we use when we know we're talking to people who are of the same place as us. And so that project collects those types of information and makes that process kind of evident, the difference between that and something that's more formal review or a more commercialized tourism. You're creating a local's guide to the local. Yes, a local guide to the local for other locals. So that there's even things about my neighborhood that, you know, I've been living in my neighborhood now for six years, which is not that long, but is long enough, especially by New York standards. There's tons of things that I don't know but the ways that I would talk about it with somebody else who lives in my neighborhood would, would be necessarily different from the way that I would talk about it, for example, with you. What's the most unusual project you've brought to the table in one of these remote spaces in which you work? I think the project that rattles people the most is the project that I did in Cleveland, Ohio. 
And for that project, I was really concerned with the idea of how do we know when we're spending time with somebody else? How do we know when we're both really there? How do we know when we're together? I was invited by Spaces in Cleveland, which is another amazing organization, to do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and I came back to them and said, I want to do a project where I hang out one-on-one -on -one with strangers and I join them in their everyday lives doing things that they, they would normally do with somebody else. So if you get your hair cut every Saturday morning with your friend Pat, right? Like I am going to replace Pat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you walk your dog every Tuesday with your neighbor, Robert, I'm going to replace Robert and we're going to go walk your dog. We're going to do it in the normal place and for the normal amount of time that you would do the thing regularly. So you did a call for who would like to be... I did, and I did it on Craigslist. What was the call? Um, How would you word that? I said that I wanted to hang out with people. I did let people know that it was an art project. It's not trying to be anything else other than an art project. The call made it clear that the limitation on things that I would do like stopped at a very intimate nature, right? I was not going to do that. But that I would do pretty much anything else, even if I'd never done it before. I don't, for example, know how to play tennis, but if somebody had invited me to be their partner in tennis, because that was their regular activity, I would have said yes. The goal was not to be ridiculous, but to be kind of open-minded. How did it rattle? People were afraid I was going to get killed or kidnapped or, oh, you know. Oh, your, your supporters, your yes. family, your friends. My mother called me every day and asked me to stop doing the project, and I didn't. I only met with 16 people and I made a big photo and text project out of those interactions that was very meaningful to me. Everybody that I met was tremendously nice and I did not feel unsafe. But the kind of condition that the gallery put in place was that Bruce, who runs the artist residency program there, would always know when I was meeting with somebody, I would text him at the very beginning and then I would text him at the very end. So somebody was looking out for me in the vaguest sense. To take Sharon's question, what did you say in the essay or want to say with your essay? Here's one thing I'm going to say first. I get a chance to say a lot of things to a lot of people, and I feel tremendously privileged about that. So I'm not really feeling shut down in terms of my spoken or written output. But I do think it's important for people to remember that there are a lot of ways to be an artist. And if my way of being an artist is helpful for somebody else, then I'm very excited to hear it. I'm not tied to a particular studio. I am more or less tied to New York as a location, but it's where I was born and raised. So, you know, we all have attachments to some idea of home. But I think when I think about working and making work, this kind of mental flexibility and emotional flexibility of travel and being able to pursue something because it's a more sustainable way of doing it is really crucial. And the studio oftentimes can be a really expensive myth that keeps people tied to one place. This is the Fresh Art Podcast. I'm Kathy Bird. Our conversations with the editor and contributors to the book Artist as Culture Producer show some of the ways in which today's artists are innovating and experimenting in their practice. The event at the Strand Bookstore launched an expansive book tour. At each stop, Sharon Loudon sparked conversations with local artists about living and sustaining a creative life. Last Artist Standing, the final book in the trilogy, will be published in 2021. Forty working artists over the age of 50 
are contributing essays about how they work to remain relevant, address personal and professional challenges, and mentor other artists. You'll find more conversations about creativity and resilience on our website or anywhere you go to listen. Please take a few minutes to review Fresh Art International on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at FreshArtINTL. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art, and listeners like you make this project possible. On freshartinternational.com, sign up to receive our latest news and give a donation to support our stories. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk. <music>